reminders of loss. And I look around the room and I know that we have several families that have lost uh, babies and, and some even recently. And so uh, I recognize that and know that it's, it's painful sometimes uh, to rejoice with and, and rejoice through uh, weeping today, what we're going to see in our text in, in one reference to Joel is that God is able to restore all that we uh, lose and all that we suffer. And so we're going to celebrate that today. We're in Exodus. If you're guests with us, I know we have several guests with us uh, because of these families that are here. You're coming to celebrate with them. Uh, but we've been studying through the book of Exodus, and we're in chapter 10. And this is the eighth plague, and in the plagues, they're often called signs, sometimes called miracles. And so all of these signs, plagues, miracles point to something and communicate something. Just like a road sign, they're intended to communicate a message. And this morning, we're on the plague of locusts, and it's a severe plague, and every one of the plagues, they they build on the last one, and this one is the pinnacle moment. Uh, So far, they're going to get worse from here, but this is a pinnacle one. But today we're going to get a reminder, the very first few verses. I'm not going to read all of the text. We have 20 verses we're going to look through today. I'm just going to read them as we go through them. But the first thing that we're going to see is that God reminds us why he is acting in this way, why he is sending these plague miracles, what he is trying to communicate. And the the big idea that he's communicating is his identity. He's revealing himself. He's making himself known to Egypt, to Israel, to Pharaoh, to the world. We're going to see that this morning. And then we're going to see that he asks Pharaoh a question. How long will you refuse to humble yourself? And he he gives a command or a threat, rather, of a judgment. But even in that, we see God is gracious, that if we repent, he will relent. And then we're going to see that the judgment is executed. And we're going to see Pharaoh's false humility, false repentance. And we're going to learn what true humility and true repentance looks like. And then the last part of this text, the good news is Moses intercedes and God relents yet again. And so we learn something about our true intercessor, Jesus, and God's relenting grace on our behalf. So those are the four things we're going to see this morning. Let's look at verses 1 to 2 and learn about God's identity being made known here. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. And there's three that's. Those are the indicators of purpose and motive in this. First, that I may show these signs among them, speaking of the Egyptians. Second, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. And then there's a third, that you may know that I am the Lord. Just like we looked last week in chapter 9 and verses 14 to 16, we learned that that for the first time God explains, gives even greater explanation and detail for why he is doing this. I could have wiped you off the face of the planet, Pharaoh, but I didn't. So that you know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord, that I am the one true God and there is no other. So that the world knows. And what we get here is further nuancing of those motives and of those purposes. They're not new motives, new purposes, they're just nuanced, and we get three of them, like I said. The first is so that Egypt knows that he is the Lord, that he's performing these signs. And as I mentioned, signs, sometimes translated plagues, sometimes translated miracles, always have a message. And we've said this throughout the the plague miracles that this is a polemic. A polemic is showing something to be inferior in comparison to something that's superior. 
And so what we're seeing is that all the gods that they worship and the gods that we worship, the idols that we cling to, are no gods at all. That they will leave you empty and lifeless, but not so with God. He is the one true God, that he is Yahweh, that he gives life, that he breathes fullness into us. If we look back, this is a good place to to remember the message of each of the plagues. As we look back over this, we see that God has been exposing their gods as empty frauds. With the Nile, God, your gods are empty, leaving you desperately thirsty. Remember, they were digging in the sand after the water was turned to blood, and they were trying to hunt down water that would give them life. With the frogs, your gods are a lifeless stench. The frogs were piled up and left, and there was a stench throughout the land. With the gnats, your gods are imposters and counterfeits. Your gods lead you to ruin and devastation with the flies. With the livestock, your gods will drain you of all of your resources. With boils, they cannot heal or help you. With hail, we saw last week, they will crush you. This week, they will consume you. Darkness, next week, they will lead you to darkness and ruin. And then the final one, they lead to death. The gods that we worship here on earth, the idols that we cling to, that we think will give us life, what God reminds us here throughout the plagues, will actually only lead to death. They will drain you of life. They will not breathe life into you. They will lead you to death. This is the message of Psalm 115. This is the message of Isaiah 40. Every time it talks about idols, it describes them as as dead, lifeless, empty, blind, mute, deaf. That these are descriptors for what the idols we worship are actually like. And then it says something fascinating and profound. Those who worship them will become like them. That doesn't mean if you worship possessions, you will become like the possession you worship. It means that the possessions that you worship or the the idols that you worship are empty, blind, deaf, dead, mute, and you will become like them, lifeless and empty, blind, futile in your thinking. But not so with God. He is life. Worshiping Him, bowing before Him, serving Him, submitting to Him, seeing Him. He is the all-sufficient one. I was reading Psalm 16 this morning. Psalm 16 talks about at God's right hand is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. What is that talking about? It means that you will never, ever, ever be able to exhaust the grace, the blessings, the fullness, the pleasures, the treasures, the beauty, the wonder, the awesomeness of who God is. Ever. You will never be able to exhaust. But with your idols, they're empty before you ever even look at them before you ever even cling to them, and they will lead you to emptiness and ruin. But there's a second so that in the text, and that is so that you tell your son and your grandson, or the next generation. Now this is Yahweh speaking to Moses, but it's clearly implied Israel. So all of Israel is intended to convey this wonder of what God is doing in these plagues to the next generation. It says in verse 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. Now, when we read dealt harshly, that that can give us some heartburn, right? Because we we read that text and we, we, we say, I know God is just, but that sounds like 
God is vindictive, that God is, is, is the, an angry God, that there's that God of the Old Testament that I've always heard about, and there he is, and he's just poking and prodding and, and abusing this people. But we need to understand that phrase. Dealt harshly means to make sport of, or another way of saying it is to make light work of. What is God wanting the next generation to know? First of all, clearly, he's wanting them to know his identity. But more than that, he's wanting them to know that he made light work of the greatest superpower, military, economic, spiritual superpower of this day. That they stood no chance before him. That their gods were not gods. That they, they had no chance before the power, the infinite power of Yahweh. Think about what's being said here. I, I love to wrestle with my three-year-old on the bed. When she gets on the bed, she's giggling, she's laughing, and, and she, she, we're playing, and she comes against me with all the force and the might that she has, and I just swat her and knock her over. I mean, look at these arms, right? I mean, she should be terrified. And when she's getting up on her all fours and she's starting to stand up, I just love it because it just takes two fingers. Just poke her in the hip and she'll fall right over again. And then she starts to get back up again and just swat her in the head and she just falls right over again. That's what's happening here. These Egyptians and all of their gods are little three-year-olds in the hands of an infinite holy God. That they have no match for his power. That their gods are no match for his power. I hate to use this illustration but it would be like the national champion, Alabama Crimson Tide, going up against Fairhope's six and under tiny Mike flag football team. That's what this is like. I mean, yes, they would just be simply toying with that little six and under flag football team. They would be no match for them, and that's what's being communicated here. I want the next generation to know I am Yahweh, and there is no other God. That there is no other God to hope in. That there is no other God that will come through for them. That there is no other God that can stand against my power. But more than that, that there is no other God that's intimate and for them. Think about why this is so important. This is, this is a message that Moses is being given. The Holy Spirit is, is, is inspiring. He's writing. He's collecting. But when is he writing this? He's writing this to a generation the next generation, 40 years from this moment, who stand on the cusp of walking into the promised land in Deuteronomy. And what is it that they fear in that moment? Is our God the one true God? Will he come through for us? We're about to enter into a promised land and there's nothing but giants there, ogres, and we're terrified. Come into the next generation that Yahweh is God, that he's the one true God, that he made light work of the greatest military superpower of this day. He will make light, of, might make light work of any obstacle that his children come up against. So he's communicating here not only that he is his infinite holy power, that there is no other God, that there is no greater power, there is no other name, but he's also communicating his intimate love and care for his children. That I, I am coming to their rescue. I am providing, I will provide for them, and I will rescue them. 
And this is what Psalm 78, 7 talks about. It, it specifically talks about all of the miracles in Exodus, that, that we need to recount them to the next generation. And it says in Psalm 78, 7, so that, recount my wondrous works, so that your children set their hope in God. So that they know there is no other God and there is no other hope. So that they know God. They know Him. I think it's so fitting and so wonderful that today we're celebrating these families that are committing to do that. And we, church, are also committing to do that with them and alongside them. There's a third so that, and that's so that you, Israel, know I am Yahweh. I love that it's commend it to the next generation and then so that you know. In other words, I don't just want you to talk about something to the next generation. I want you to know it. I want you to have a personal encounter with the infinite holy God, Yahweh, and His intimate grace come near to you. I don't just want you to convey information to the next generation. I want you to convey your life transformation. I want you to be astounded by my rescuing grace in your life, and I want it to bubble up and overflow into proclamation to the next generation. There's several implications here. First, and I don't think we have to belabor this because we've said it with each of the idols, do you see that the horizontal gods that we worship here in this world, the idols that we cling to for life and meaning and purpose and identity are no gods at all. They will only leave you devastated, empty, and lifeless. Do you recognize that? A second implication here is that God's extraordinary rescuing grace is intended and expected to be communicated to the next generation. In our case, it's His extraordinary rescuing grace in Jesus. That's supposed to be on our lips, on our tongues, on our minds, overflowing, bubbling up, a part of everything that we do, communicating this to the next generation. Many of us wrestle with sharing the gospel. We think we have to achieve some sort of academic knowledge, level of knowledge, before we can communicate the good news of the gospel. We struggle with that. But don't miss what's being said here. Communicate your story of God's miraculous astounding, rescuing grace. How has he come near to you and rescued you out of brokenness? Communicate that to the next generation. I think there's a third implication here, and that is the good news of Jesus' rescuing grace is not something we're simply intended to communicate, but it's something we're intended to know personally, experientially. He wants us to communicate, to proclaim, but also to know personally. To, again, not just communicate information trans transference, but life transformation. This is what the entire book of Deuteronomy is. This is the whole first several chapters of Deuteronomy is all about remember all that I did and communicate it. Joe just read Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. That's why we think it's so important that it must be something we have personally experienced, His rescuing grace, and it's something we are also intended and expected to communicate to the next generation. Is this what you are recounting to the next generation? God's rescuing grace. Now, don't get me wrong here. I, I, absolutely, we, we, we desperately need help serving and, and, and loving on these babies. That is the next generation. Or serving and loving on the kids and the kids' ministry, first through third or fourth through sixth. We absolutely 
want and need, and it is expected that you serve in those ways and commend the gospel to the next generation. This is a parent's first and primary responsibility, but this is also a church's secondary responsibility. But there's more ways that we can communicate to the next generation than simply just the kids. We have so many newly engaged and newly married couples. I have half a dozen I can think of right now. They need the story of God's rescuing grace in broken marriages. How God has come to the rescue individually and then in marriages. The wisdom that you have to convey. We have so many. You just saw it. So many. that These are their first children. and Eight in two different services. And they need the wisdom. These young parents need wisdom. So you have that to give. It's always intended to bubble up and overflow and to be communicated. Is that your... Is that what's on your lips, on the tip of your tongue, constantly, regularly to the next generation? The good news of God's rescuing grace. There's several people and and, and, and individuals that I've talked to in the last couple of weeks that that they have just really experienced God's rescuing grace and and been saved and their lives have been changed. And I can, just this week, talking to one, I can't help but talk about it. I can't help but, I can't help but... I want to. I'm so excited. Please don't squash that and tell them that's not what we do. We don't do that. No, fan that flame. May the Holy Spirit fan the spark of the good news of the gospel that's taken root in those individuals and may it overflow and go beyond. That's what's intended to happen. Is this what you are leaving to the next generation? Or are you leaving your love of sports or your love of hunting or your love of insert blank? Are you leaving that or are you leaving Jesus' love for them? This is what we're intended to do regularly and constantly. We talk about family discipleship. Joe mentioned it. Family discipleship is being intentional in capturing the, the time, the moments, and the milestones. Today was a milestone. We, we celebrated a milestone a few weeks ago with graduation. These are milestones that happen in the life of every individual. And it doesn't have to be just married and, and with kids. We are a family as a church. And that is intended. We were intended to communicate time, moments, and milestones. The good news of the gospel at every stage in every way. How are you or will you help water the soil for the next generation, that the gospel may flourish and grow in their lives. That leads us to verses 3 to 6, and God's threat of judgment and his offer of grace. And in these verses, what we see are two messages that have really been communicated through the plagues and really from the beginning of Genesis all the way through the rest of the Bible. And the first is that refusal to submit to the authority, to the leadership, to the kingly rule of God, of Jesus. Refusal to do that leads to death. But the good news is that submission to him, bowing before him, if we will repent, he will relent. And that's the good news of grace that's found in the gospel. Let's look at the first one. In in verse 3, refusal to submit leads to devastation, destruction, and death. So God commands Moses to go. Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? That's a profound question. It's a question of the text. It's a question to you and I. 
If you remember back last week, 917, it says, Pharaoh, you continue to exalt yourself, which means you lift yourself up. You think highly of yourself. You think that you are a God. All of Egypt thinks that he is a God. You are exalting yourself. This is the inverse. How long will you refuse to humble yourself? It's two sides of the same coin. Pharaoh thinks that he's a God. Everyone else thinks he's a God. And the question of the text is, how long will you refuse to humble yourself? What we see in Pharaoh is someone who should be humble, exalting himself. But what we see in the New Testament, what we see in the Christian faith, what we see in Jesus, is that someone who should be exalted actually willfully humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, Philippians chapter 2. And he did that for you and I. And what we learn is that's the way into the kingdom, humbling ourselves, bowing low, submitting to him as king, not ourselves as king. Thinking himself, thinking him as understanding him, recognizing him, reckoning him as the king and Lord, and reckoning ourselves as not. The implications are clear here in this text that refusing to submit will lead to devastation and destruction. But if we repent, he will relent. There's a threat in verses 3 to 6 of judgment. And it is profound. And as I mentioned, it's a pinnacle threat. It's the threat of sending locusts. And three times it says, by an east wind. That's a huge, those are two huge indicators of the judgment that is to come. It's the pinnacle moment so far in these, in these plague miracles. Why is the threat of locusts such a significant issue? Throughout, it's even a threat today. In NPR, National Geographic, right now, 2020 to 2021, there's, there's massive swarms of locusts in Ethiopia and in Kenya. And all of them, their headlines are saying, is this the judgment of God? They're covering the land and they're crushing the, the crops and destroying the land. This is a massive threat of judgment. Every time east wind is used in the Old Testament, it is always God's divine activity bringing judgment on a people or a place. Add to that the threat of locusts and what they do and its utter and total ruin and chaos. This is what God is threatening here in this text. Look at what the the threat is. I will bring locusts into your country, in verse 5, and they will cover the face of the land. Verse 14 says they will come up over the land, all the land of Egypt, on the whole country of Egypt. Verse 5 again, there will be so many that no one can see. Verse 15, the land will literally be darkened, the sun will be blotted out. Verse 15, they will devour anything left after the hail. That's mentioned three times in the text. So remember, there were some crops left after the hail. Now they will be completely and totally ruined. They'll eat every tree. Verse 15, they're going to eat all the plants, the fruit. Not a green thing will remain, neither tree nor plant throughout all of the land. This is total economic collapse. This is the threat of absolute, total, widespread famine. There is no more food in the land. Verse 6, they will fill your houses and the houses of your servants and all of the Egyptians. Verse 6, again, there will be more than your fathers and grandfathers have ever seen. This is an idiom, which means no one has ever seen the, the, the likes of this scale of a plague. As I mentioned, this is still a threat even today. 
that, that, that in, in Ethiopia and Kenya, there are literally swarms in, in different pockets all around Ethiopia and Kenya, some as large as Baldwin County, with trillions and trillions of these locusts devouring crop after crop. Now, we're talking all of Egypt, not just one little county, Baldwin County. Egypt is larger than the state of Alabama. Filled with these devouring locusts, swarming locusts. Everywhere. I drove to, to church this morning, drove through several, or past several uh, fields where, where corn is, is growing those would be devastated in seconds. They can eat the weight, their body weight, in trillions of these eating all of their body weight, they just devastate and, and completely bring economic ruin and famine. This is the threat. This is the judgment. And what's interesting, if you want more understanding of how the scale and the devastation that they bring, you can study the book of Joel where God actually brought locusts on his own people, Israel. Because they had forsaken him. Because they had forgotten him as their first love. And in Joel chapter 1, it talks about the swarming locusts, the hopping locusts, the devouring locusts, the destroying locusts. Those are different words, different types of locusts. But they all come together to devastate the land. In Joel chapter 2, it talks about the, the, the locust. What it sees before it is nothing but Eden. In other words, lush, green, beauty, crops everywhere. But what it leaves behind it is death, devastation, and destruction. This is what the locusts do. This is what God does on his own people in Joel. And why does he do it? To capture their attention and to regain their affections. It's intended to capture their attention and regain their affections because what he says in Joel chapter 2, 1 and 2, there's a greater threat than locusts. There's a day of final judgment. A day of final judgment when God's wrath will be poured out, where you will be completely cut off, not just your crops. And so what he, what he calls them to and what he calls us to is repent. Repent. And that's what leads us to the other half of what's happening here in this text and even in Joel. If we repent, he will relent. That's what he does in Joel. He calls, us to, calls them to rend your hearts, not just your garments. Rip your hearts apart. Let your hearts be laid bare before me, not just for show. Genuinely repent. And then what he says in Joel 2 is that he will relent. He does relent. He shows grace. And now what does he do in this text? It's, it's in this text as well. He is, is loving and kind and gracious. Submission leads to life. Verses 2 and 3. Let my people go that they may serve me. For I, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. There's, there's two ways we see God's grace in this. First, is, it says, if you refuse, I will send. It's clearly implied, if you will re repent, if you will submit, if you will not, then I will relent. But there's another way, and that is the word tomorrow. And we've seen this throughout the plagues. Every time God, God could, not chapter 9, in other places, he could just wipe Pharaoh out. He could wipe Egypt out. His arm is not too short. He's not limited by anything but he doesn't. Instead, he says, tomorrow. 
Instead of acting instantly, he allows them a chance, an opportunity to repent. He is extending his grace and his kindness and his mercy and his long-suffering to sinners and rebels and allowing and calling for repentance. And again, the implications are clear. If we will yield ourselves to God, he will relent. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when Jesus shows up and arrives, he says, the kingdom of God has arrived. What's a kingdom but the rule and reign of a king? What's he saying? The king is here. And the very next words out of his mouth are, repent. Bow. Recognize you're not the king. Recognize that I am the king. And with our heads bowed low, with his hand on our neck, the king should be off with our heads. Instead, the very next phrase after that is, and believe the good news of the gospel, that instead of piercing us, he was pierced on our behalf. This is the good news of the gospel. If we refuse to humble ourselves, we will face a greater judgment than locusts. There will be a final day where we will be cut off. Pharaoh's servants beg him to listen. In verse 7 it says, How long will Moses be a snare? It's the almost identical question. How long will you refuse to humble yourself? His own servants come and say, How long will Moses be a snare? They're politicians. Servants are likely the leadership council, the administration. They're politicians. They're trying to say, without offending and losing their own heads, they're trying to say, How long will you continue to be so ignorant? How do we know that's what they're saying? The very next thing in verse 7. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? We are being brought low. How long will you not bring yourself low? How long will you continue to be overinflated in your own perception of, of who you are? Bring yourself low. But what we know in the text is he doesn't. Instead, he begins to negotiate. And why does he do that? Because he thinks this is a negotiation between two equal partners. He thinks this is a negotiation between two equal gods. He thinks himself God, and he thinks Yahweh is just another one of the gods. And what he does here is he continues to negotiate. We saw that he negotiated in chapter 8. He says, you can worship in the land, but don't leave the land. Again, he says, you can, in, in 828, worship, but don't go far. And then he says, you can go and serve in insects, but which ones? Which ones do you want? And then Moses answered him, everyone. And he says later in verse 11, go and serve, but only take the men. Do you see? This is a constant negotiation. Later he's going to say in verse 24 of chapter 10, you can, you can all go, but leave your livestock. He's trying to retain some, some grasp of control. He's negotiating, but God's not Budging because God is not negotiating. He's issuing a command that must be submitted to. And he doesn't negotiate with you and I. We must submit. We must recognize that he is Lord. He is king. That, that he is in charge. That we are not. And we must submit to him. In response, Moses answers again, we will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We must hold a feast to the Lord. Pharaoh, I don't know how to tell you this, but everyone and everything we have is going with us. God has commanded it, and we are going to obey. And then here's a fascinating thing that Pharaoh says. Verse 10, the Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. 
the tone and the meaning of that, Pharaoh is mocking and scoffing at what Moses has just said. Oh my goodness, God really is with you if, I, if that actually happens, if I actually let you go. What Pharaoh is not willing to acknowledge, what Pharaoh doesn't really know, what Pharaoh is saying but doesn't know it, is God actually is with Israel and it will happen. He's being invited here to repent. What we see in verses 12 to 15 is God executes his judgment. The locusts come, they devastate, they destroy. And then what we see is Pharaoh's false humility, his fearful false humility in verse 16 and 17. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. What's going on here? It looks like Pharaoh's repenting. It looks like he's relenting. A couple of words give us key insight that this is not what is actually happening here. First, the, the word hastily. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses. What that means is a fearful frenzy. In a fearful frenzy, Pharaoh sees total economic collapse. Pharaoh sees a famine on the horizon. Pharaoh, no, 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 stop, 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 stop. That's what he's doing here. He's trying to retain and grasp what little is left. And what we realize by the other things that he says here, I have sinned against the Lord, your God. Not the God, not against Yahweh. He, he still, again, sees fair, uh, Yahweh just as another one of the many gods. And then he says, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord to remove this death from me. That's an interesting phrase, because no one's dying in this plague. There's a threat of death if a famine comes. Last plague, with hail, people did, with hail, people did die. But in this one, Pharaoh's giving an indicator, a breadcrumb to the idol of his heart. Pharaoh is deathly afraid of losing his position of power and control in the land of Egypt and the world. And that's what's being revealed here in this moment. Stop, 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 stop. I can't. Please don't. Don't take this from me. Take, take this death from me. What he's talking about, what he's revealing in this moment is that he doesn't fear Yahweh. He fears losing power and control and his own renown. That, that's what he's most concerned about. He sees this famine, this economic collapse as death, particularly death to his rule, death to his kingdom, death to his power. And what we're seeing is what he worships most. What we're seeing is what he clings to most. Remember, Pharaoh exalts himself. He thinks that he's God. He refuses to humble himself. He, he thinks that he is God, that he is in control. And what God is doing is exposing him for who he is. You're no God at all. You have no power. But Yahweh is. Yahweh is in control. Yahweh is on the throne. And you must bow before him. That leads us to the last point here in verses 18 to 20 in the final scene. And what we see is that he's in this fearful frenzy begging Moses to call off the dogs, call off Yahweh, because I don't want to lose the things that I value most. And despite his false humility and despite his, his attitude here, 
and clinging to these things, Moses still goes out and intercedes on behalf of Pharaoh. And God does something again that's extraordinarily gracious. He relents. Verse 19. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locust and drove them into the Red Sea. And not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. That alone is a miracle in and of itself. Trillions of locusts in, some, in, in an entire country covering, devouring everything, and in a split second, gone. That's amazing. should be communicated to the next generation. But there's more here that's being communicated. What we're getting is a glimpse, a foreshadowing of what's to come for Egypt and Pharaoh if they do not repent. Because what's going to happen in chapter 14, this very same language is going to be used of Egypt and Pharaoh, that they will be lifted into the sea, the Red Sea, and they will not one will remain. We're getting a glimpse and a foreshadowing of what's to come with Pharaoh and with Egypt. God is long-suffering towards rebels and sinners, but he will not be so forever. There is a day of final judgment that we will all stand before God and have to reconcile, reckon, and understand that we are not God. And we are in desperate need of someone to stand in the gap on our behalf. The day of judgment is on the horizon if they do not repent. And if we do not repent. What's pictured with the locusts is what's to come to those Egyptians who don't repent and also to us. They will be driv driven into the Red Sea and they will be no more. As we said, this, this same scene is played out in Joel. And in Joel, the locusts actually are sent. They actually do come. They come here, but they come and they devastate the people of Israel. And it's all to capture their attention, capture their affection, and warn them of a final day of judgment that is to come. And again, he calls them to, to rend their hearts, to not put up a show of repentance, not give words of repentance, but to truly repent, to be sorrowful for what they have done. They have sinned against a holy God. To not be sorrowful because they were caught, to not be sorrowful because of the consequences of what they've done, but to be genuinely sorrowful for offending a holy God. In chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, that's where we hear about this, rend your heart, hearts, not your, your garments. And they do, and he does. They repent and he relents. And then he issues this unbelievable promise. I will restore to you all the years, not the stuff, all the years that the locusts have consumed. Uh, what's most amazing in me, to me in, in Joel is that where the, where the locusts see Eden and only lead death, leave death, God sees death and only leaves Eden behind. When God invades, he brings life. He brings, he brings fullness, pleasures forevermore. And this is the promise here. Now fast forward to the New Testament and the final day of judgment in Revelation. And lo and behold, one of the marks of the final day of, of judgment is devouring, destroying locusts that will come and they will not destroy and devour and kill crops. 
they will come destroying and devouring man, particularly those who do not or are not marked with the seal of God, it says in verse 4. Oh, if we could only have one better than Moses who would stand in the gap, who would intervene on our behalf, who would intercede for us, who would take on himself the devastation and destruction and death that we deserve, that we are facing on the horizon. If we could only have one better than Moses, we don't have to wonder, we don't have to long, we have that one in Jesus. He took our devastation, he took our destruction, he takes our death on himself. This is the good news of the gospel. And I wonder if you've experienced that this morning. I wonder if you know Jesus personally, experientially this morning as your Redeemer and Savior from the destroying locusts that are on the horizon, from the wrath of God that we'll face, that we all will face. Do you know that joy, that freedom? Do you know the, the Eden that God leaves behind when he comes and invades? Is that what your, your life is marked by? That kind of joy, that kind of, that kind of, that kind of rejoicing, the, being astounded by His rescuing grace. Is that what you have experienced? Is that true of your life? If it is, this text commends you then to, to, to extol and to exalt and to proclaim it to the next generation, to the ends of the earth. The question of the text to Pharaoh is the question put to us. How will you respond? How long will you refuse to humble yourself before God? Have you brought yourself low before an infinitely holy God? Have you deflated yourself? Or will it take some devastating, destroying locust to capture your attention and your affections? Have you experienced his rescue from bondage, his overabundant, staggering grace? If so, then the message of the text is to commend it to the next generation so that they would too know his rescuing grace. How are you and how will you do that? Tell your kids, tell your grandkids, tell those newlyweds, tell the next generation, tell your neighbors, tell your coworkers. How will you and how are you doing that? We'll never will never rejoice in or proclaim something that we are not daily, if we have not experienced and daily meditating on. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for this text. There's so much in these, in these verses here that we see the devastating effects of trusting in other gods. And may we be willing and humble before you, to, to humble ourselves, to deflate ourselves, recognizing you. May we see you, Holy Spirit, use your word to teach us how infinitely superior God is, how infinitely all-sufficient Jesus is, and how inadequate the gods of this world are, how inadequate my own strength is, my own wisdom. And may you bring us low in that moment. And in that moment, may we not despair. May we see the other half of the gospel, the good news that you are our hope. You are our rescue. You are our covering. You are our seal from the day of final judgment and the devouring locusts that are to come. Lord, we rejoice in that 
forgive us where we have had wandering eyes, where, where we've had wandering hands, wandering hearts, wandering lives. May it not take as devastating horde of locusts to capture our attention like it did for Israel. May we rend our hearts and not our garments. May we do it now, not later. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.